Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, this is a series we've titled Good News. Today's good news is this, you were not born to a slave. Do you know that? You weren't born to a slave. Uh, Let me review the, the basic situation. Pastor Paul is writing this letter, of Gal- uh, this letter that we call Galatians. He's writing it to a people that live in the province of Galatia. And they're a young church. They're a church plant that he planted on his first missionary journey. They're a young, at least in terms of maturing in the faith, they're a very young church. And they're a predominantly Gentile church, which is going to be really important in today's passage. Um, in Paul's absence, they've been infiltrated by false teachers who are distorting the gospel. They're, they're twisting the gospel and they're adding to it in a way that Paul says, that's no longer good news. The, the meaning of the word gospel is a proclamation of good news. And he says, the way that the, these teachers are coming in and, and causing you to doubt the gospel you heard and they're adding to it, that's not the gospel. That's not good news. Listen to the report of one of the things that happened. So this is, I'm going to read you a little excerpt from the very first missionary journey when Paul came to Galatia. This is one of the towns in Galatia that they stopped in. And this is what happened on that trip. Acts 13. As Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again the next week. Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas And the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. This This is the big contrast between Paul and the other teachers. Paul encouraged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. Grace is God's undeserved, unearned, actually ill deserved favor. This is the opposite of what you deserve, it's God's kindness that is unearned and undeserved. Paul encouraged them, urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. The following week, almost the entire city turned out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. But when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous, so they slandered Paul and they argued against whatever he said. Slander and argue. So that happened on the missionary journey. Paul got home. He went back to his home in uh, Syrian Antioch and heard reports that that was continuing to play out. Uh, now he's having to write a letter to combat, to combat that slander and the contradicting of the message of grace that he had preached and that the Galatians had responded to. So um, the big picture is that Paul's opponents, here's what they're, if, if we could summarize it, and this is kind of a complicated passage and I've tried to like stick to the big points because we can get lost in it, especially because there's some, some cultural and some historical difference for us or distance for us. But here's, here's what the opponents are telling these young believers. They're saying, in addition to the good news of Jesus that you heard from Paul, you also need to start practicing aspects of the Jewish law and culture in order to be saved and in order to keep your salvation. They're saying things like circumcision has to be practiced. These are Gentiles, they're not 
that's not part of their practice. He says all the men need to become circumcised and you begin observing the Jewish law, celebrating all the Jewish festivals. They've insinuated that Paul withheld part of the gospel and that they have authority from Jerusalem and from the Old Testament scriptures. Again, they're coming in and they're saying, look, you've been invited into this thing that's been going on for some 2,000 years and we know all the history. We know all the Hebrew scriptures. Paul withheld some things from you. Yeah, he told you about Jesus, but he didn't tell you about this. And so it's undermining their faith. It's causing them to doubt. It's creating fear. They've said that entrance into God's family and God's blessing, both present and future, is not just about believing in Jesus. It's also about following Jewish law, beginning with circumcision. So, We've been, we've been working through this for a while. If you're, if you're new, that's kind of a recap of, of what Paul's been trying to deal with there. And today, this is actually kind of like his closing argument. And you know how, uh, you know, you watch, like if you watch like legal shows or something like that, sometimes the attorney, the defense attorney, he'll wait for the final thing to build his, his final case. And he or she will present some sort of story that just kind of closes the deal. That's what today's passage is. This is Paul closing the deal. So um, here's what he's going to do. He's going to go to the same root stories that his opponents are appealing to, that his audience may be just like vaguely familiar with, but because they're saying this is the authority, he's going to use the very same scriptures to combat the things that they're saying. Let's look at Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you not know what the law actually says? Now, I, I highlighted the word law there be, in the two usages because it's the same word, but it's being used in different ways. It's kind of got a double meaning. So in the first sense, it's keeping the law. It's talking about what we were just describing where these uh, teachers are coming in and they're saying, you need to keep the Mosaic law. You need to keep the Jewish law regarding festivals and circumcision and all these things, right? So that's one word usage. But the word law, the, the law in Jewish parlance is also used to describe the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's, that's the law. And so Paul's saying, so if you want to live under the law, do, do you guys actually know, do you guys know what it says in here? Paul's opponents have been using the law and their greater familiarity with it to intimidate and to bully. They've been using it to intimidate and to bully these young believers. So basically, Paul says, okay, that's how you want to do it. I can, I can play that game. Remember, now, Paul is not anti-Semitic, and he's not anti-Jewish. Paul is a Jew himself. He himself grew up immersed in the scriptures. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees by his own description. But, but when he came to these Gentile believers, he didn't pr- call them to be Jewish. He called them to be followers of Jesus. And there's a difference there. Paul still practices the Jewish faith as the expression of how he worships God. He just doesn't put that on other people, right? He's still, he, Paul himself is circumcised. Paul observes the, the, the feasts, but he knows that that's not a condition of receiving the gospel. Verse 22, the scriptures, this is Paul talking now from the scriptures. If you want to know what the law says, here's what they say. They say that Abraham had two sons, one from his wife, his slave wife, and one from his freeborn wife. This gets interesting. You know this story? One from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. 
Paul's now referencing the story of Abram and Sarai, who would later become Abraham and Sarah. And these are, these are the parents of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. They're, the, they're the, uh, the beginning. This is the origin story for the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. They're to be the people of promise. And remember this, this was always the call, going back to Genesis 12, to be a people who would receive God's blessing in order to bless the other nations of the world. It was never only about them. They were to, to experience God's abundance and his provision. They were to experience relationship with him in which he would reveal himself in very personal ways that no one else would know. But it was never just, to, that wasn't the end. They were to then share that with all the nations of the world. So we're gonna go back and visit that story because Paul's gonna make some points and he's, he's twisting the story in a very unique way that would have shocked his opponents. We're gonna go back and we're gonna really quickly recap the story that he's talking about. And it spans, it spans 10 chapters of Genesis. So hope you brought your running shoes because we're gonna cover this really quickly. Genesis 12 and 15. Abram and Sarai left everything to follow God as sojourners in a foreign land. He's promised to bless them and to make them a great nation only they have never been able to have children. Okay, so, so God comes to them and he calls them out. He calls them for out from their family and their homeland. He says, I want you to travel in a land that is not yours and trust me. And I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, again, the challenge is they're childless. And this isn't because they have been planning for their family and they just have, it's not been the right time yet. And so they're trying to kind of get their nest egg and get everything in order. This is not like that. They are now 70, Abraham is 70, or Abram is 75, and his wife is 65. And they've been trying to have children for decades. Children was a huge priority in the ancient culture, even more so than today, because how, that was how your, your name and, and carried on, that was how you had an inheritance and, and, and a family to pass things on. That was, it was a, this agrarian society where children were vital, especially a son who would be an heir. So Abram challenged God. He, he pointed out this potential problem in God's plan. He said, well, God, this is all wonderful, and yet uh, we are childless, so how can we become a nation when we don't even have a family? And God doubled down on the promise that he said, no, I'm going to give you a son. God said that through that son, Abram, he said, Abram, you will have, he said, look up in the sky. Look up in the sky. This is a nighttime conversation with God. He says, look up in the sky. And so Abram looks up and God says, can you count the stars? Abram says, eh, not really. He says, your descendants through the son that I will, the promised son that I, have, I will give, I will provide will be more than the stars in the sky. And then God put that promise in the form of a covenant. Genesis 15 is this crazy story. You can go read it. But let me just tell you what it means because it's kind of, it's, it's lost on us with the, the historical context and but basically, God enters into a covenant that day with Abram. Only, it's not a covenant in which they're equals and they both kind of shake hands or they both sign on the dotted line. It's not a covenant between equals. It's what we would call a promissory covenant. And it means that God says, this is going to happen and I will do it. And the way that Abram knows that it's, that it's on God to do this is that he falls asleep during the covenant ratification. He sleeps through the whole thing. God does his part. Abram, for his part, is asleep. 
And, and so this is God's way of saying, and God put him into a deep sleep. It wasn't, it wasn't just because he was tuckered out. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to do this. In Genesis 16, after 10 more years of infertility, now Abram's 85 and Sarah's, Sarah's 75, uh, they decide to help God along and speed up the promise. And so Sarai gives her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, to Abram to have a child with, sort of an ancient world forced surrogacy. This was a, a, not an uncommon thing in the ancient world that if someone could not have children of their own, sometimes the, the, they would do that through one of their household, um, you know, this is in this case her maidservant, and it would, it would become like a surrogate. Sarah would claim this child as her own. But this is, what, no, this is not what God had promised. It wasn't what God had said. Sarai actually justified this action by blaming her barrenness on God. She said, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Do you hear the, the, the difference between what God has promised and what they're supposed to be waiting for and her experience? She interprets this and she says, God hasn't let me do this. So I'll take matters into my own hands. Have you ever done this? You ever taken matters into your own hands because God wasn't acting the way you thought he was going to act? I have, it always, always gets us in trouble. This decision and action by Abram and Sarai has echoes of Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve take matters into their own hands. They, they, our friends at the Bible Project, they, they sometimes talk about the Old Testament as having hot links, and the hot links always take you back to Genesis one through three. This is a hot link story. That what Abram and Sarai do in this moment, it's, it's a lot like what Adam and Eve did our first parents, when we first fell into independence and rebellion against God. Also in chapter 16, Hagar conceives. She does become pregnant. But the plan backfires when hostility arises between the two women. Hagar looks down on Sarai with contempt, and Sarai resents her and is jealous. If you read the story, Sarai confronts Abram with, with what the dynamics that she's experiencing, and he tells her she can do whatever she wants to Hagar which is not Abram at his best. Regardless, the way that plays out, eventually Hagar does give birth to a son. She names him Ishmael. At this point, Abram is now 86. In Genesis 17, Genesis 17 jumps forward to 13 years after Ishmael's birth. We, we, we don't know much about that, 13 years. But Abraham is now, or Abram is now 99 and Sarai is 90. God appears to him again and renames him to Abraham, expanding his name from exalted father to father of a multitude. Meanwhile, they're still childless, apart from Hagar's son Ishmael, who is now 13. At this time, God commands Abraham and all the males in his household to be circumcised, and this language is really important, as, as a sign of the covenant. It was a, a reminder that they were a covenant people in covenant promise and relationship with God. Okay? It wasn't the covenant itself, it was a sign of the covenant, but God gave them that as a sign, and I always, I always think, you know, how did God land on that? You know? I mean, like, when he wants to give Noah a sign of the covenant, he's like, well, how about a rainbow? You know? And, and then he's, now, now, now it flashes forward to, to Abram, and he's like, hmm, what will make an impact on them? Like, what, what will they remember? Pretty sure Abram was like, could I have a rainbow? <laughs> Also, at this time, God renames Sarai and promises a son through her. And when God does this, he says, God, God says, no, 
I'm, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. He renames her. At this point, Abraham laughs. And here's why. Because he and, he and Sarah know that at this point, it's not only unlikely for her to get pregnant, it's actually impossible. Because she's actually gone into menopause. They say at one point in these chapters that, that it's, it has ceased to be with her in the way of women. So she's in menopause, so it's, it's not even possible for her to have children. Let's read what happens in this exchange. Abraham bowed down to the ground. He's talking to God, but he laughed himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought. And how can Sarah have a baby when she's 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, may Ishmael live under your special blessing. You hear his solution? He says, God, can you just fulfill your promises through Ishmael? He says, what you're promising, it's not even possible anymore, and so we figured out a plan B for you. Listen to God's response. But God replied, no. No. Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as you've asked. I will make him extremely fruitful and multiply his descendants. He will become a father of 12 princes, and I will make of him a great nation. But my covenant will be confirmed with Isaac, who will be born to you and Sarah about this time next year. God insists that his covenant to bless them and to, to make them a blessing to all the nations of the world is going to happen on his terms. It will at this point be miraculous. God, I think that's intentional. Why did God wait until Abram is 100 and Sarai is 90 and she's gone through menopause? Because he wants them to realize that this this thing that he's doing through them that's going to affect all of the earth, all of creation, it's miraculous. It's not something that man could, could come up with. There's nothing they could have accomplished for themselves. It, and it's going to be through, get this, a child of promise. It's going to be through a promised son. There's a hot link there that doesn't go backwards, it goes forward. Then there's this three-chapter interlude after chapter 17. There's a three-chapter interlude, including a second story in which Abram tries to give away his wife to a foreign king, which is probably not very helpful for his marriage. Surprised she got pregnant after this exchange. So let's pick up the child of promise thread in Genesis 21. Genesis 21, Sarah eventually does conceive. Isaac is born one year later, just like God promised. One day, Sarah reacts to a situation in which she sees Ishmael harming his little brother in some way. The text isn't quite clear what happens. What's just clear is that Sarah reacts. She sees 13-year-old Ishmael and, you know, baby Isaac or whatever they're, you know, they've got a 13-year age gap, however old they are at this point. She sees something play out, and, and here's what she says. She complains to Abram, Abraham and demands that Abraham cast out Hagar and Ishmael, that Ishmael will not inherit along with her son, Isaac. Abraham begrudgingly complied with that because God assured him that he would take care of Ishmael and bless him too. So Hagar and Ishmael are sent away into the wilderness, which is not a place where you would expect them to thrive and survive, but God meets Hagar there. He has, she has an encounter with, she says, the God who sees, and he says, I'm going to provide for you. He assures this outcast and vulnerable woman that he has plans for her son too. And then God provides for them. Ishmael grows up to become the father of the Arab nations. And that is 10 chapters of Genesis summarized as the background story to what Paul's referring to. So 
With that in mind, with that fresh story, now listen to how Paul describes this. Genesis 4, or Galatians 4. The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife, one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. Treat this as picture language, okay? He says, he says this, is, this is kind of an allegory. Not an allegory in which every single thing corresponds to something else, but this is like a picture of something bigger. These two women stand for two covenants. One comes from Mount Sinai, which, what came from Mount Sinai? That's where God gave them the Ten Commandments. The, the law, it all, we actually call it the, the, the Sinaitic law. He said, one, part of one of these covenants came from Sinai, and, and his readers are thinking, okay, we're tracking with you. That's the, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the special law that they're telling us we have to obey. And it gives birth to slave children. That's Hagar. Sinai, you see, is a mountain in Arabia, and it corresponds to the picture, in this picture, to the present Jerusalem. She is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem that is above, Jerusalem, that, the new city that's coming, when God reestablishes his presence here on earth with his people. Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Hagar, the slave wife, was the mother of Ishmael and ultimately the Arab peoples. And since Mount Sinai, where the law was given, is in Arabia, it's like he's, Paul's saying, well, don't be surprised if following the law given at Sinai lands you in slave land. And he says, that's what's going on in Jerusalem. Paul then continues to use the Hebrew scriptures to make his case, this case jumping from the law to the prophets to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 4 says this, and Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, you who've never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who've never been in labor, for the desolate woman has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. That's Isaiah 54. You know what came before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53, you guys are sharp. <laughs> We're not going to turn there. We are going to turn there in a minute and read an excerpt of it as we receive communion. But Isaiah 53 is a description of Jesus. It's a prophetic promise of the promised son. The son of promise who is the greater and truer son of promise, the, the greater Isaac. It's a description of him and it's a description of what he would do, how he would accomplish it by being crushed on the cross that he would do all this work. And, it, and it's as a result of that that, Paul, that, that Isaiah can then turn in 54 and say, now rejoice because the son of promise has come and he has done what no one else could do. The suffering servant promised in Isaiah is the true and greater son of promise. And he is why the once barren woman will at last bear miraculous children of promise herself. Galatians 4.28, and you, dear brothers and sisters, this is his closing deal, you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. Who's he talking to? Predominantly Gentile church. He says, who are the true children of Isaac? They're not the ones that are genetically descended, but they're through faith. You, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just like Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? And now this is quoting Sarah. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. 
And so, dear, so, so if, you, if, if we got lost anywhere in there, here's his conclusion. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we, himself included as a Jewish Christian, a Jewish follower of Jesus, themselves as Gentile followers of Jesus, we are not children of the slave woman, we are children of the free woman. Paul just flipped the story. This is one of those moments that for them, I think it gets lost on us, but for them, this was like, what? wait, what? This is, like, this is like sixth sense where you get to the end of the movie and something happens that goes, you know, what? And you have to go back and rewatch the whole thing. Or, or like Planet of the Apes. Like, there's stories where something happens and it reinterprets the whole thing. That's what Paul just did. This final twist changes and reinterprets the whole story. Abraham and Sarah's true descendants are not those insisting, are not those insisting on the law given at Sinai. He says that's slavery. The true descendants and the heirs to that first promise in Genesis 12 are those whose birth is through promise and through a miracle of the Spirit, not by human effort. It's not by anything you could do, not by anything you have done or could do. The true descendants are those who are the product of that true and greater son of promise who died and was resurrected in order to make new birth, spiritual birth, birth by faith possible. As such, it is all those who put their faith in Jesus and the promise who are the true descendants of Abraham. That's what's going on in this complicated passage by which Paul closed out his argument. As we get into the rest of, of Galatians, we're going to change gears and it's going to be a lot of application. What does this then mean for the way that we live our lives in our present day? That's the closing of the argument. That the question for us is like, okay, so, so what? We just visited a story that was written, so the letter was written 2,000 years ago, and in it, or it's written 2,000 years ago, and Paul reaches back to a story that was even 2,000 years before that. What does it mean for us today as followers of Jesus or curious people who are maybe curious about following Jesus? So what? Here's, what? here's what it means. First of all, the cross is a category buster. It is the pivotal moment in God's interactions with humanity. It reinterprets everything that came before and it informs everything that comes after. Think of, think of human history as having a pinnacle and that pinnacle is the cross and the empty tomb. And so everything that came before it, this reinterprets it. This is why Paul can, can and it, honestly, as I was reading all through Genesis this week, I found it very understandable why these Jewish teachers were insisting on circumcision. Because God made a really big deal about it. He'd said, this is for all of the males born in your house and all of those who come into your house who are not born from you. I can actually understand why they insisted on it. Not, nothing can reinterpret that except for God. And God reinterpreted that and, and gave it new meaning, gave it a deeper meaning through the cross. Jesus is the ultimate flesh and blood revelation of God's nature and person. And if Jesus sets aside physical circumcision of males in exchange for circumcision of the heart for all people, he is the authority. That's what we're told in scripture is that it, it, physical circumcision always pointed to something. It was, it was preparing people for something that was gonna be much deeper than an outward act it was going to be actually a transformation of the heart. And that's why it's an act of faith. It's not something that we can conjure up on ourselves. We can receive it in faith. Lastly, what is the basis of your... Con so, so a couple questions, and we're going to receive communion as we do this. If we could have our worship team come, we're going to um, 
Just prepare to receive communion. So let me ask you three questions that help us bridge from what we've been studying into actual application. First question, what's the basis for your confidence or your insecurity about your current status before God and your future with God? When you think about God, how does God think about you? Do you experience assurance? Do you experience peace? Do you experience uh, uncertainty or fear? Do you think about things that might be a barrier? Do you find yourself comparing yourself to others and thinking, well, I don't quite do it quite as well as him or her, or actually I'm doing pretty good because I do it better than him or her. What's the basis of your confidence? What nagging questions bully your heart and your spirit into doubting whether you are forgiven, whether you are loved, whether you're called and destined? Do you have nagging questions? Do you experience abundance, assurance? Do you wonder, how does God think about me? Lastly, is your faith in Jesus and what he has done, what he's promised to finish, is it in him or is it in yourself, what you have done and what you still need to do? We become enslaved when we focus on ourselves and on our performance. And when, things, and when we feel like we're doing well, then we can feel confident. And then when we blow it, we can feel devastated. That's the human condition. And it's part of being enslaved and being still responding to the law. But we can have an assurance. We can have an assurance of forgiveness. But there is nothing, there is nothing that you have done that can keep you separated from God. There's nothing that the blood of Christ and the power of his resurrection can't forgive and heal. There's no habit, no addiction that can't be overcome by the power of the resurrection. Nothing that you've ever done or ever will do because it was never about you. It was always about the child of promise. It was always about this thing that God said, I will do, and you just go to sleep. Our part is, we, actually, we do have a part. It's to respond in faith. So we're going to receive communion, and maybe if, you, if you're here in the room and you didn't get communion when you came in, uh, would you just put your hand up and our, our greeter team will come around and, and bring communion to make sure you have that? Communion here is, is an invitation. It's not an expectation. It's an invitation to personally respond to that pivotal moment in human history when the son of promise gave his life for you and for me. This is a matter of responding to it. You may be responding for the very first time. You may have never received communion. We don't have a, uh, a class you have to go through to receive communion. Communion is about recognizing, I need that same grace. And if, if Jesus did something for me that rescues me now, and, and into eternity, then I want to receive that. We've looked at the language in Galatians as, as the, what, what God does when we put our faith in him is he sends into our hearts a spirit of adoption. 
spirit of adoption to teach us to know him as a father who is altogether trustworthy and good, the perfect heavenly father that redeems all of our experiences of parenting. Whether the best experiences, God is better than our best experiences of parenting. And it's a spirit of adoption that sends, that is sent into our hearts to awaken that, to awaken trust and faith. So as you hold the communion in your hand, you have the bread that represents the body of Jesus that was broken, offered up that we might be made whole. We also have the, the cup that represents Jesus' blood that was poured out through which we're offered forgiveness, that we can be cleansed cleansed of any of the things that have been done to us or the things that have been done by us. There's forgiveness. There's cleansing. There's new life. And we receive this provision. We take it in. We literally, we take, this is, a, this is now the sign of the covenant. Oh, that's so much better than circumcision. This is now the sign of the covenant. That we're taking God's life into us and allowing it to become the life that we live to sustain us, to heal us, to, to transform us into his image, to send us out into the world, to carry his image faithfully. This is all something that he has done and we receive it in faith. So as we close, I'm gonna read this little excerpt out of Isaiah 53. And when you're ready, you can receive both the bread and the cup. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Heavenly Father, we receive in faith the provision that you have made. The, we receive into our hearts your spirit. We place our confidence in the promised son that you have, have promised you will finish what you've begun. May your life in us transform us, redeem us, draw us into greater relationship with you? Would you shape us into your image and send us into our world? God, for those who are struggling with forgiveness, pray for a spirit of forgiveness to cleanse hearts and minds. 
remove the guilt and the shame and would you break the power of sin in our lives. We offer ourselves to you for your, for your glory. We offer ourselves to you for the sake of others. And in this, we pray that we would find true abundant life now and into eternity. Amen. Church, the, uh, the worship team is going to play one of the songs from our earlier set. We're going to go ahead and formally dismiss. But we are going to have a time of, of prayer and ministry. I don't know. We may have some words for prayer. Um, if not, uh, if you need prayer this morning in any way, and maybe especially if you responded in receiving communion for the first time today, we would love to... Um, to know that and to pray with you. And so uh, you're welcome to just come up here underneath the screens on either side if you need prayer today. Uh, you're welcome to stay and worship as well. Um, and you're welcome to go get your kids and um, have a great day. Go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.